0: I'm bringing you another interview conducted in person last week at the CEO Circle Flying, powered by J.P. JPMorgan Chase in the beautiful city of Chicago. Joining me is Ben Lang, founder and CEO of Native Chats, a multilingual messaging platform specializing in real-time text translation that enables people to communicate across 100-plus languages. Ben's a former Army Ranger with a background in technology and design, holding global leadership roles in military special operations national intelligence, and innovation-focused organizations from startups to large enterprises. On the show, Ben gets personal, sharing the struggles of his first few ventures, the difficulty of being a single father, and the sacrifices that come with being an entrepreneur at the expense of maintaining close relationships. The road isn't all sunshine and rainbows, but Ben and his team firmly believe that they can unlock access to opportunity by eliminating language barriers, and that's a mission worth fighting for. Before you hear from Ben and I, make sure you subscribe to the Transition newsletter at the link in the show notes. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, shoot me an email at mike.steadman at bunkerlabs.org or message me directly on LinkedIn at IronMikeStedman. Also, if you're interested in applying to CEO Circle or know someone who is, applications are now open at the link in the show notes. In order to qualify, you must be a growth stage business, generating a million dollars or more in revenue or have received significant investment of $5 million plus, be sure to review the eligibility criteria before applying. And lastly, I encourage you to check out my first book, Black Veteran Entrepreneur, Validate Your Business Model, Build Your Brand, and Step into Greatness, available on Amazon at the link in the show notes as well. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, MetLife Foundation also provides mentorship, and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey, Mr. Ben Lang. Finally, honor and privilege to get you on the transition. We've been running around back and forth for quite some time. I don't even know if we've ever got to really chat much, but you know, when you're in this ecosystem, it's real easy to kind of overlap people or follow people's journey from afar. And you were someone I've been wanting to get on the podcast for quite some time, man. So super happy to have you here with us at this CEO circle flying in Chicago, Illinois. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, it's
1: been nice. I know we've been operating for from separate coasts, but glad to finally meet you. See you in person.
0: So Ben is a serial entrepreneur at this point. If you want to see all the crazy ventures and things he's been a part of, you know, check out his LinkedIn profile. But in all seriousness, man, I think you guys are doing some great stuff at Native. I know you've been in the fight for almost four years now at this point with the app. Please talk to our listeners. Really just bring them up to speed on all things native. And then I'm going to ask you to get vulnerable for us and take off your armor about what you're struggling with as a you know serial entrepreneur at this point. Yeah,
1: I think. The place to start with Native is that our big hypothesis is that the next generation of business leaders or decision makers are going to choose to build their companies on top of multilingual infrastructure as opposed to the monolingual infrastructure that we've all been operating on to date. And for, the, for us, that means that we're creating ultimately access to customer and talent markets in any corner of the world for any
0: business from day one. I think that's the interesting thing about the economy we find ourselves in this global economy, right? There's talent all over the world these days, a lot of untapped potential. And, you know, I have a friend of mine who runs a kind of similar service, except they don't use software per se, but they hire out people to help them translate. You know, it's called Argo's Translations, so websites and different things. And this talent pool is literally all over the world. And so when you think about more and more technology getting built, you all are able to essentially create more agency, create more economic opportunities for people who otherwise might not have those opportunities thanks to your product. If I'm being
1: honest, when I started day one, my vision is that no longer would the language that you're born into or your access to language education dictate your socioeconomic mobility. And that's, you know, a global vision. And I truly believe by the end of this, that our technology will impact all 8 billion people that are on this planet. But we had to start with a business proposition or, you know, business value to help us build the platform and then democratize communication across organizations and then
0: individuals. So we're going to get some more into it. But before we do that, I got to ask you to get vulnerable with us and take off your armor. So, you know, somebody like me, I think I entered the entrepreneurial ecosystem, the veteran entrepreneur ecosystem, probably 2017, 2018. I was like, oh, there's this tribe of vets out here that are, excuse my language, kicking ass and taking names, launching startups and small businesses, but you've been at it a while. How long is? How long have you been an entrepreneur? How long would you describe yourself as an entrepreneur at this point? I mean, I,
1: I think that when I take a step back and look at my life's journey, I've probably always been an entrepreneur, you know, from mowing lawns and weed whacking and stuff, it, maybe age five or six years old was my favorite thing to do on the weekends. And I started actually working for other people's businesses when I was 14. But in terms of leading my own startups or ventures, it's been about 12 or 13 years now. And
0: that's a long time. That's a grind. And, uh, you know, I always tell people, you know, you see this magazines, Tech Crunch of the world, et cetera. And it always seems like these entrepreneurs are just living the perfect life. But you and I know both behind the scenes, it's a grind. And I would love for you to get vulnerable. and. Share with our listeners something you're struggling with, either personally or professionally, currently as a veteran entrepreneur.
1: Yeah, I think everything goes and flows in cycles. And so, you know, for me personally, as you prompt me that way, and and I'm trying to think about and more likely, you know, wanting to talk about a personal struggle than a business struggle, even just recently, I've I've just come out of kind of a little bit of a three to four week slump, you know, where wasn't really a depressive slump. It was just a a slump of feeling stuck, a a bit numb to everything and and disinterested. And I think that that just comes with the territory of logging so many years, so many hours in doing this, that those waves are going to come. And and for me, I usually try to insulate other people around me from going through that experience with me and to just be introspective and, and know that it will pass and everything does pass.
0: I want to sit on this for a second because the last episode of Transition I recorded, I talked about the importance of resetting yourself with a morning routine. You know, going back to the basics, the meditation, the reading, all the stuff you did when it was just a hope and a dream, then you start getting customers and then you're in it and you know, you're living out the entrepreneurial lifestyle, but you can drop some of those things that you were doing when you didn't have any customers. And I'm going to be vulnerable too is I find myself feeling stuck quite a few times as well. You know, every day just kind of feels like groundhog's day, right? Like, you know, you have your routine. I go to the same coffee shop. You know, I keep the consistent schedule. But some days you wake up and you look at the schedule and you're like, is there more to life than this? You know, I don't want to just jump on another Zoom call. No, man, I found myself guilty of that as well as where you just one day you just wake up and you just feel stuck. And so um, how did you get out of that? What was Have you found a strategy that's worked over the last, you know, 12 years or so? Because I can't imagine this is the first time.
1: Yeah. I I don't have a magic recipe to get anybody out of that or even myself out of that. But like I said, I know that it will pass. You know, a year and a half ago, I went on the journey to lose 45 pounds. I was 230. That was big. I hadn't been that light, you know, after putting in, I don't know, nine to 12 months of work, probably since I was in the service. And, you know, so all these things kind of just ebb and flow, right? You, you build up Entrepreneurship is ultimately about imbalance, right? And you are accepting the imbalance that is required to endeavor towards this risk that you're taking. And um, In doing so, you know that you're never going to be in this perfect state of kind of flow or, or peace. But this morning, you know, I knew I was going to be on your podcast and I, I actually just traveled back from South America two days ago. And then yesterday I had to travel from, from home to Chicago. So this morning it was very important for me to wake up. I got some stretching in. I got some gratitude journaling in. Got a twenty minute meditation in, and that meditation was a lot of visualization based stuff. And in that work, I knew that I had you know a bright light to to bring to the day today.
0: Yeah, man, that stuff is so important. Like I said about getting reset. And it's interesting, you know, you were a ranger, right? I was an infantry officer. I used to think meditation and mindfulness was all this hipster stuff. Then you start dealing with the stress of entrepreneurship. And, you know, I pull up my Headspace app. You know, even when I just feel myself anxious for no reason, it's literally my mind telling myself, to like, hey, you just need to slow down. And I think meditation is something that's a good trigger for me to just instantly, like, just pause and get reset. And I find myself meditating, you know, sometimes two to three times a day now.
1: I love that. <laughs> I don't meditate two to three times a day, but I try to mix some of that more introspective work with external work, you know? So even though I was going to be traveling for 22 hours on Saturday, I started Saturday morning by hiking the big, biggest mountain nearby, Santiago, Chile, you know? And so that's the balance is is keeping mind, body and spirit as aligned as possible.
0: So take us back. How did you actually become a uh veteran entrepreneur, what was your journey like?
1: I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up because my first foray into entrepreneurship was a huge fumble. I'd been working as an, a targeting officer at the DIA. Um, so when I wrapped up my career, I was a senior intelligence sergeant for a civil affairs brigade, moved into working at the DIA, then worked for Palantir coming out of the DIA, Been a technologist my whole life, and I was unsatisfied creating so much value for these organizations and not being able to extract that, at least more so for myself. Um, So I started a company, I shelled out a business overnight, and when I told my brother about that, he was like, mind blown that I had built a business overnight, you know, or or the, the framework of a business. We had chatted about starting something together for a really, really long time. And so he convinced me, his his kind of enthusiasm for what I had already accomplished convinced me that we should actually make a go at it. I'm very, very family-centric. I'm always trying to build with people I love. You know, I, I want the wealth and the process, the journey to, to be shared in, in that context as much as possible, even though sometimes that's really, really hard. And, you know, my brother's not a partner in my current business for that reason. Many friends, you know, have kind of
0: felt Yeah, it's not easy having family and friends involved in businesses, but it's still a good North Star for a lot of people to shoot for. So I started my first company and then, you
1: know, kind of pivoted overnight that my brother was going to be in on it. Our idea was that we were going to build a holding company and we were going to, you know, put out all these small businesses and... For those of you who have, who have been at least moderately successful in, in building your own business, you know that that's a recipe for a disaster. I sold about everything that was worth anything to my name to put into starting that first company. It's called Guildsmith. And I moved from the D.C. area to Charlottesville, Virginia with my son. I was a single dad at the same time, too, which is a whole nother, you know, layer of responsibility and, and risk when you're doing this thing. Unfortunately, about 10 months into my first business, I became bedridden. So I was playing competitive soccer two, three days a week. I had just backpacked 40 miles in the Shenandoahs, summited the, the two tallest peaks in the Shenandoahs recently. One morning I woke up super tight, stretched out for like half an hour. And by the end of the night, I was pulling myself up my stairs to get to bed by my fingers, just completely stricken. It was a super demoralizing time, but Opened up a whole nother set of opportunities for me. And of course, with every challenge or problem in life, it can be reframed as an opportunity. So maybe we'll chat about that more. What led to you being bedridden? It was a accumulation injury from jumping out of planes and fast roping out helicopters and you know, carrying packs thousands of miles. But ultimately, the bottom three discs in my spine were bilaterally herniated and the L5 S1 had something called desiccation, which is basically there's no fluid in it. And I, and I guess, you know, that equated to sciatica and was, was the reason on that day that I couldn't walk, (laughs) but it's just one of the many, many bumps. And, you know, from that, I ended up closing up that house in Charlottesville. All of my household goods stayed in storage for like five or six years. I moved my son in with my father, taught myself some Adobe skills overnight, submitted an application to go to Parsons School of Design in New York. Fortunately, they accepted me, went there for a semester, was not getting better, ended up on my dad's doorstep too for for a year, had to get three epidural injections and do physical therapy three, four days a week. And that whole time, the walls were just shrinking in on me. It It was actually a really, really dark year for me. But in my first semester at Parsons, I had designed my first product It was called the panel wallet. And I held on to that concept and I kept slowly working on it with the limited resources I had basically from my dad's couch with my dad standing over me saying, you know, why the fuck aren't, aren't you a capable, you know, adult human being, right? And why are you in my house and why can't you make it on your own? So that was one little light that I held on to through that entire year. And I eventually successfully kickstarted that product. And that provided kind of a whole new wave of energy that I rode back into going back to Parsons, finishing my undergrad, became the first person in my family to complete an undergrad or graduate degree, and so yeah, the journey's been crazy, but you know i I kept building business even in in the darkest of
0: of times man, that's a great story, and congratulations on that, you know being the first in your family to do it now one thing i don't you you touched on I want to talk some more about is. So you transitioned out of the military and went straight into entrepreneurship.
1: I, I did not. I I went and worked at the DIA as a civilian, and it was early days for a company called Palantir, which I think a lot of people know of now. We had a pretty extraordinary supercomputer. I was building targeting packages and using tools that look like m- the Minority Report. You know, it's pretty incredible to get to work with technology like that. And as I developed my workflows. Volunteer software wasn't supporting all the all the needs that I had. And so they started assigning engineers to me. And ultimately, that's how I kind of got recruited out of the DIA to, to go work on the commercial
0: side. Understood. And so then after that, that's when you started the business and then went to Parsons. And Parsons is the new school, but there might be listeners who are unfamiliar with Parsons. So I would love for you to give them a quick 30-second overview
1: yeah I mean, the the synopsis there of Parsons is that it's a top one, two, three design school in the entire world. It's the top design school in the United States. I actually studied in their sole business program, which is called Strategic Design and management. And so if you're familiar with an IDO or Frog design or fjord, any of these design thinking consultancies, ultimately we use design methodology and a human-centered approach to intervening within systems to create dramatic change.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to get at because I know Larson's mainly for like design, but I didn't know necessarily on the business building aspect of what they're teaching over there. Yeah, I think a a cool little segue here, Mike,
1: would actually be there is a part of my journey at Parsons that directly relates to uh, why I started Native. And so, in my undergrad, I asked the faculty to allow me to take a master's course that was called Postplanetary Design. And this class was about designing for the 100 to 10,000-year human future. I partnered with this African guy, Io, who was trying to portray the African diaspora in a space future. There's a lot of big words, so I'll try to like break that down a little bit. If you think about a SpaceX flight suit, it's, it's all white, right? It's sterile. And that is often the case in a lot of design these days. And when you think about, you know, Asian cultures, Latin cultures, African cultures, they're very vibrant. There's a lot of organic forms that are portrayed within the culture. And so what does it ultimately look like for us to take our cultures with us into the future? And so the big lesson I had in working with IO and taking that class, my my big takeaway was ultimately that the innovation paradigm tends to produce more homogenous outcomes. And by what we're doing in Native, I believe that we had the opportunity to flip that paradigm on its head and use technology to produce more diverse outcomes, right? And so, for anybody that's listening out there, I personally believe that diversity is a strength in all things and am not somebody who's seeking oneness. And so, if you also believe that, then you know, you believe that. Taking that forward, no matter what the future looks like, is going to make humanity better.
0: I think you went over a lot of people's head on what you just talked about, but I'm going to break it down for people. I think sometimes we don't realize that our own biases, the way the world is now, even when we're creating new technology, we can bring those biases into the technology that we're creating. So just like you talked about space, the look and feel of it, it is lacks the agency of some of these other cultures that you're talking about, whether it's the African diaspora or I don't even like to use the term oriental, but back in the day, the Asiatics, et cetera. And so now you're able to basically get their input in how this new future kind of looks, right? It's not just coming from one group of people, but everybody has a contribution into into tech. Yeah, There's inherently
1: entrenched knowledge and culture that exists within language. And today, Native supports multilingual communication in 136 languages. There are 7,000 languages. And humanity, humanity loses one of those languages every two weeks. I'm not on a mission to preserve every language. That's, that's not something that I think is feasible within, you know, my personal means. But I am on a mission to create access to people, information, and opportunity in every language.
0: So once you came up with this idea for Native, what were your next steps? How did you actually bring the product to life? Yes, I was in the first semester of grad
1: school and it was November 2019 when I decided to take my earnings from the services based company I was running before native and pour it into building a product. You know, crazy because 3 months later we hit pandemic, right? And the whole world stops. So we started with just trying to proof out with the question Could we integrate, seamlessly integrate chat and translation into seamless or unified messaging experiences? And so by February, we actually had that working in an alpha and and then the whole world shut down. And immediately we had an opportunity actually to deploy that early capability via mobile devices onto people who needed it onto their phones. And so you know, I'll give you one small example. There was a an aging Armenian c- community in Los Feliz, I believe, in Los Angeles. They needed somebody to bring their prescriptions to them, their groceries to them, right? Because they were at risk. If you remember very early on, we were like, everybody who's old, stay inside, do not go outside. Um, and so the neighborhood council was actually trying to organize those services for them, but couldn't communicate with them. We provided them a means of being able to communicate. We had a bunch of those types of early opportunities to to test the utility of this product. More recently, a big one was Ukraine. We had tens of thousands of Ukrainian refugees fleeing from Ukraine, entering into Eastern and Central European countries and needing some kind of technology to be able to communicate with their new hosts. And then as their kids went to schools, communicating with their kids, teachers, and then dealing with the immigration agencies and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, that's outside of the business context of what we do and just by way of using the proof of concept app that we built called Native Chats that's available free to anybody in the world. Now, did you bootstrap
0: to get initially started or did you have to go ahead and raise capital?
1: I bootstrapped. I took 250K of what would have otherwise been my salary out of Viceroy and put it into building Native. And I went three years without a
0: paycheck. How do you stay alive that long without income for yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I have, I guess, the fortune of being a disabled veteran. In many of the cases of my ventures, I used my veteran benefits for school as a means to prop me up. And so being in school was contingent with me starting something new, whether that was for four years or for two years. And ultimately, I've had a pretty supportive family you know, not outwardly supportive uh, so much in, you know, like handing me cash or any of those kind of things, but living under, you know, other family members' roofs or, you know, just kind of in general being provided for. Even my dad taking care of my son has been a huge gift, right? My My family does perceive me as, you know, somebody who is taking a lot of risk with the intent of paying it back to the entire family and and creating a new foundation for everybody to operate from. So I'm extremely blessed to have done that. But I will say before I I wrap up that point, every day that I've been an entrepreneur, I've been willing to sell the mattress out from under my head. If it's the difference between winning and losing in this game.
0: Yeah. I think that some people don't realize of like the other thing too, you got is you have a, a a son, right? So a single parent, I can only imagine how hard it is. It's already hard enough being a startup founder and then also being a parent at the same time and two different kind of, I think two different kind of mental challenges, man. I can only imagine like, how you practice being present for your son while also being present for your team at Native?
1: The honest truth is in order to do this, I I believe that you have to sacrifice a lot in relationships and when i think about relationships in general you know whether romantic relationships familial relationships or you know my best friendships that's a big question i have when i'm done with doing whatever i'm doing now you know however however things net out how much work am i going to have to do to rebuild and invest back into those relationships because they are highly ignored and that's just something that you need to acknowledge. And I think it's better if you have an open conversation about that, whether it's with your parents, your siblings, your son, that that's definitely a way that I've evolved and and been able to open up with those people about.
0: Ben is getting real y'all because you're so right about maintaining these kind of relationship stuff. Cause you do, you know, we always talk about this thing balance, right? But does it really exist? And the other thing too, is like, You know, you do got to be a little selfish when you're a founder because not everyone is going to see the vision. Thankfully, it sounds like you have a family that's really wrapped around you and understands that, hey, you're risking a lot, but we understand that this is going to be able to allow you to pay it back later. But when you're going through it and you're missing birthday parties and weddings, and sometimes you go into monk mode where you're not answering emails and phone calls, people can feel some kind of way about it. And they don't necessarily understand the pressure that so many of us are facing as entrepreneurs to succeed. We have so much on the line. We sacrifice everything.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you said, Mike, that we will be able to pay it back someday in the future. That's a big fucking question too, man. You know, for most startups, right, it's like one in 20 or something makes it past two years. How many of them are actually going to bear the fruit that is life-changing for you or other people around you? That's a very, 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 very small percentage. So, you know, huge risk. Maybe it's not worth it. And I think, you know, that's something people have to consider. For me personally, I can't imagine myself doing other things. You know, I've sat in a large enterprise. So there was one stint after I I graduated from Parsons. I worked for a company called Axon. They make police body-worn cameras. I ran the engineering services division there and i took you know an almost million dollar a year loss in the business and turned it into a part of the business that produced 25 million dollars in revenue a year and i definitely did not get my fair cut of that and was promised a lot of things over and over and over again that's an environment that i don't want to be in i move way faster than You know, an enterprise with a thousand employees or ten thousand employees—certainly an enterprise that's like AT&T or JP Morgan Chase with three hundred fifty thousand employees—the bureaucracy of navigating that and meeting really big business goals or objectives is really, really hard to do. I'm just not somebody that wants to move at that pace.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I think entrepreneurs—we're just wired different. And I'm glad you said that, brought up the point about you know whether this succeed or not, because I've been thinking about this lately. I'm a big fan of the Stockdale paradox. So James B. Stockdale was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, Hanoi Hilton. He was also a Hoover fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. And so we even got a Stockdale Leadership Center at the Naval Academy named after him. But one of the things Jim Collins adopted from his time with Stockdale was this idea of the Stockdale paradox of you have to be willing to accept the brutal facts of your current reality. But have faith that things will work out in the end. And so he equated that to a lot of POWs thought that they would be home by Christmas. And when they weren't home by Christmas, they literally died. Literally. How do I equate that to entrepreneurship? Right? The brutal reality is you may never go home. You have to accept that. That is it. As entrepreneurs, we might need to accept the fact that this thing might not ever hit. I know we want to be all hopeful and that we're going to get this multi million dollar exit. Because that's what people tell you, you know, the positive psychology. But just like you said, the reality of it is for everyone that makes it, there's going to be a thousand in the graveyard. That's just the nature of the game that we play. Especially now. And so with that being said, right, it's something else that you're getting out of the journey. Right. It's not necessarily just, you know, the exit. It's like our responsibilities to make meaning out of this life that we're living, whether we're an entrepreneur or we're supporting entrepreneurs, et cetera, I think it's really on us. We always think that there's this big exit or this goal we're working towards, but it's really the right now, you know, like even us, it's the middle of a week. We're in Chicago at this fly-in, right? We all got stuff to do, you know, back home, but this is part of the journey. And so, you know, just the reality of it.
1: I've learned the hard way, I think, over time to really appreciate the journey and, and have gratitude for all that I do have, all that I've accomplished, right? I'm, I'm not personally attached to whatever the end goal is. I know where I'm trying to go. But, you know, for instance, we, we didn't get to talk about this earlier. You mentioned another very diverse organization that I think your friend runs. You know, Native is 23 people now. I can't check every bit of the work, right? It is not up to me. There are market forces. We were an SVB customer. I remember, you know, like Monday after that happened, the, the run on the bank happened. We had investors write us and go, shoo, glad that that's over. It was like, no, it's not over. Luckily, the first email that Cammy, my head of operations, received that that Friday morning was from JP Morgan Chase saying that our commercial banking accounts were open Next email she got was from our accountant saying, get all of your money out of SVB, right? That debacle, you know, caused us maybe four days of time of remapping all of our accounts payable, all of our accounts receivable, all of our subscriptions, all that kind of stuff. That's a small impact. I knew just by way of that bank failing, even even momentarily, that it was going to have an impact on the venture market. and. You know, while it doesn't equate to the entire story that's happening in the economy right now, venture was down 80% last quarter, right? So $1 for every $5 that was getting doled out before is getting doled out. And how are you going to make your business exceptional and be in line to to get that necessary capital to continue
0: scaling? So we go through a pandemic only to deal with inflation, then a bank collapse. Seems like you've been through a lot within this last like just three years in itself.
1: For sure. You know, I think that that's one of the things that we specialize in as veterans is resiliency and, and is magic to this game. But I, you know, I think that the hardest growing is actually probably still in front of us. And I think that we're going to watch a lot of startups go up in flames, maybe even mine. I, I Again, I'm not in control of that, but the next 18 to 24 months are going to create a lot of opportunity for the
0: winners. And we're going to see a lot of losers. Yeah, because even now, right, there's a I know a lot of people are stressing about the whole AI stuff, right? It's getting rid of certain jobs. There's that going on. You know, like you said, the market's still kind of correcting. But why do you, in addition to what's happening in the banking system, what is it that has you so, I don't know, cautious about the next 18 months? Well, just
1: the economy. We we just don't know, right? But companies are not spending money on things that they don't absolutely need that aren't absolutely essential. So if you're out there and you're building something that's a nice to have, the the rowing's going to be really 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 hard. And, you know, we're seeing that too with like all of the reductions in force, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, if Salesforce lays off 10,000 employees, guess how many other companies' products were being used and how much less revenue is being made by those companies just with that one riff, right? We've seen millions of people get laid off. So the spending is just different, where we're gonna get our money from, the story we're gonna have to tell to, to get the money. That's all changing and we really don't know. I think, you know. thankfully for me, in the early days of the pandemic, when we had that alpha ready, I started communicating with uh the Air Force Special Operations Command, you know, along with AFWorks and we won our first cyber contract and then we won, you know, our second cyber contract and now we've had 3 and we're pending a couple of others. But I see, you know, having the government as a cu- customer now being something that makes native exceptional. Why? Uncle Sam always pays the bills and that's not the same with with the commercial market.
0: Now, even with all this going on, you pulled yourself away to come to Chicago for the CEO Circle flying. Why is it important for you to be here with other veteran entrepreneurs like yourself? The first thing is just show up. <laughs> That's like first rule.
1: I was in Chile the last two weeks where Native's is also a part of Startup Chile, which is one of the most well-regarded accelerators in Latin America. One of the things that has led us to being a part of that program is not so much about what the programming was, but creating the market signal that we needed for VCs and customers in the Latin American market. And I think we started that by being in like the Wall Street Journal of Chile. It's called Diario Financiero. And then we were in Startup Chile. And so that's helped us. You know, one of the mentors through that program is the head of Boston Consulting Group in Latin America. You know, so there are some things there. but yeah. There are a lot of commitments. Our goal in being a part of the CEO Circle program was to get on JP Morgan's radar. Just while I was grabbing you coffee before we started the podcast, uh, I ran into Rhett. Rhett. Rhett was introducing me to somebody and saying, think about how JP Morgan's expanding internationally. We need native products. And that's my purpose for being here. Aside from that, you know, this is something where you have to appreciate the journey in every moment. And so being able to give back, being able to share in fellowship or uh, you know camaraderie with other veteran entrepreneurs, I think we're stronger. I'm I'm starting you know as I'm saying that, Mike, I'm starting to think about you know I've even started to recruit other cohort members into thinking about moving their businesses to Wyoming, which is something I did last year, but I did for financial reasons. Although I had a passion and wanted to buy a property in Wyoming like seven years ago, there's no personal or corporate income tax. I'm going to give a shout out for, for Wyoming right now, but you know that's one foundation. As a disabled veteran, there's no property tax after three years of residency. And so many other things are free on the personal side. The state uh, will give you $160,000 to put towards internships. They'll pay 75% of your cost to go to any conference. They have a CBER matching program. So they'll match $200,000 on up to four CBER phase two contracts. And now they have a state run VC fund that's worth about fifty-five million dollars. I think about thirty million of that is gonna go directly into startups. There's less, less than a half a million people live in Wyoming. So, you know, the way I think about native arriving in Wyoming last year is we're a shark in a very small pond in terms of our global scalability and desirability for for the state's economy.
0: So I've spent quite a bit of time in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, my business coach. Shout out Bill Watkins lives out there. But you bring up a good point that a lot of viewers might not be aware of. Number one, whether it's Wyoming or New Jersey or Florida, etc., there are these state-led venture funds, right? All these states are trying to look out to build their own venture ecosystem. The other thing you talked about was even a relationship of wanting to build a relationship with J.P. Morgan and Chase because A lot of companies, they're trying to do corporate venturing. And rather than break the bureaucracy internally, it's a lot easier for them to recruit startups to come fall under their brand, et cetera, and they invest in them and uh, innovate that way. So you've even seen a lot of startup studios that are embedded within uh, these corporations. So there's that going. And then the other thing you talked about was the SIBR. I think it's important for people to understand that, hey, the government is actually putting grants out there for potential technologies that they can license later on, whether it's for military use or or government use, et cetera. And so that's why it's important for people to know all the different options that are out there. So that way they can be a lot more intentional. And even just you bringing this awareness about Wyoming, this is why these in-person meetups are so important because otherwise your peers might not know about this stuff at all.
1: Yeah, as you say all that, um, Mike, I'm just thinking, you know, Native wouldn't be alive if we weren't in the CIBR program, if we didn't win those contracts. So that's been essential to our survival. But over the last 18 months, we've worked hand in hand with AFSOC to build our Slack killer, Native Flow. And now we have a pipeline of customers for that product, including like a, one of the more recent ones. We were working with the innovation team in US Forces Korea. There is a shared network between US Forces Korea and the Republic of Korea's military that has I don't know, something like 5,000 daily active users on it. When they're doing exercises on the peninsula, that scales up to like 15,000. That's anywhere from a quarter million dollars to three quarter million dollars in monthly recurring revenue for us. And we're displacing Cisco Jabber on that network. You know, so pretty incredible opportunity and definitely in these uncertain times, if you can partner up and become a dual-use technology, it's something that I think is, is going to be very beneficial to your survival and hopefully thriving as a startup.
0: So as you look to the future, what's your personal Big hairy, Audacious goal as well as your professional Big hairy, Audacious goal for Native and wherever your entrepreneurial journey lies ahead? Yeah, personally, <laughs>
1: I... I'm hoping that the next few years will bear out in which I can become a father once more in a relationship and embark on that as kind of like the next chapter of my full-time work. I'd like to to be set up that way. I'd like to ret- retire my parents. I know that sounds like a very humble and small goal, but I don't have big grandiose goals. I don't want to build build a half billion dollar yacht or any of those kind of things. I want to exist in a very low profile way. On the business side, you know we thought early on about building the the core technology and s- selling it off to like a ring central or something like that for a few million bucks that was like the initial idea and the more and more i've sat with it the more and more my belief is that we really need to scale this technology and get it into as many people's hands as possible with the vision of democratizing communication, before we even think about, you know, whether we would sell the business or IPO or any of those kind of things, we want to get to that scale. And we do think about, you know, pretty infrequently because it, it frankly doesn't matter what the big idea is behind everything. Every day, you just need to knock down the 50 meter targets and eventually you can step back and say, wow, we've, created a mountain of success. And now that success amounts to some, you know, kind of final outcome, but we, we want our technology to positively impact as many people's lives as possible. And as I said early on, I believe that's, you know, everybody who lives this side of the digital divide can, can benefit from what we're doing. And so I'm not going to stop until we get to a place where we feel like this has become a standard. No longer do you Download an app that works in, in a monolingual way that every single communications medium that you use enables you to speak across language barriers in, in a seamless way.
0: And just to bring it personal to you, so I run a boxing gym in Norton, New Jersey called the Ironbound Boxing Academy. I literally have Dominican, Puerto Rican, Ecuadorian, Brazilian, you know, Ukrainian. I got the full spectrum of kids that come into this gym. And there's a boxer I'm thinking of now. I can't remember his name, but he doesn't speak English, you know. And I have trouble. We speak boxing, you know. So I look at him, and be like, "You shadow box or jump rope." But I'm seeing that divide right then and there. Now, thankfully, I do think we have like these human social cues where you know you can kind of figure it out. But literally, I can't. I struggle communicating with them. So when I think about you saying this word, democratizing communication. You know across all mediums. I think it's a powerful North Star to shoot for, especially as you know, the world just continues to open up. You know, more and more people are coming online these days. They're communing across time zones and the globe. It's a really exciting time. But like you said, there's still challenges that lie ahead. And one thing I want to do to close this out is I've been getting hit up a lot on this podcast by ironically transitioning veterans. Right? They reach out to me, Mike, really love your show. I'm thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, but I don't really know yet, but you really inspire me. What words of encouragement or your advice do you have for transitioning veterans and military spouses that are interested in pursuing entrepreneurship or may also be in the fight currently?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. I think... First and foremost, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and decide if that's really the journey that you want to embark on. It is not flashy. It is not lavish. It is really hard unless you're somebody who comes from wealth and whose parents can allow you to fail or family can allow you to fail numerous times. There's a huge cost to it. And so what I found that works for me is being able to align with a, a purpose that I really, really believe in. I'm not somebody who can go around and sell something that's, you know, doesn't embody my values. And the other, the other part of, about it is like, what how can you set the conditions, the environment that you're gonna operate in that provides you the biggest safety net or the biggest opportunity to fail numerous times while you figure out what the pathway forward is? And so, you know, as you heard earlier from me, my way of doing that was being in school. Because, you know, I got New York and San Francisco rate, BAH, all the school stuff paid for. I ran little side hustles to put more cash in my back pocket or to infuse in the company. And that provided me a safe place to really fail a lot of times and, and figure
0: out how to, how to be successful. Well, Ben, man, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Where can people find you? How can they get a hold of you to learn more about all the work that you're doing
1: and your company native? I keep a pretty low profile, but on LinkedIn, you know, I'm Ben Lang or slash proxy Ben and across social media, I'm Scooters, whatever, Scooters feed, Scooters tweets. Yeah. It's a little homage to a childhood
0: nickname. So I'll be sure to include a link to your website in the show notes for all our listeners. Thank you once again for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to the Transition Newsletter at the link in the show notes. There's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter reach out to me on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman, or shoot me an email at mike.steadman at parkerlabs.org. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week.